So I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but human beings cannot walk in a straight line. Did you know that? You might be thinking, no, Dave, I can walk in a straight line. I've done it before. Cops have pulled me over and I successfully <laughs> walked that straight line. Um, no, they've done this research and it's, I think, maybe 20 meters, 30 meters. I'm not sure where it is, but human beings, when they're walking any long distance at all, begin to curve, begin to walk in circles. What the issue is, is if you don't have like external markers that tell your body when you're walking straight and when you're not. So without those external markers, right, like when we put people in forests and we tell them to walk in a straight line, what do they do? Well, they start curving. And when we put people in a desert and we ask them to start walking in a straight line, what do they do? They start curving in a circle. They've done it with blindfolds as well. They blindfold people and they tell them to start walking in a straight line and people just naturally can't walk straight. And our text today is addressing this issue. Now, I was talking about a, a kind of biological, physical issue, right? Like physically, without external markers, human beings can't walk in a straight line. But spiritually, we have the same problem. This morning, we're going to look at a text that challenges us to walk by faith, to walk by faith. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bibles to Galatians 2. We'll be reading verses 11 through 21, where Paul challenges the apostle Peter because he's not walking in a straight line with the gospel. The last few weeks, we've been looking at topical sermons that kind of address, in general, what it means to do life as a community. So two weeks ago, our executive pastor, Jim, addressed what it looks like to change spiritually. He was in Colossians. The week before, Philip Holmes, our guest speaker, spoke from 1 John chapter 2, and he talked about how we need to learn to love each other, and that that's a mark of the gospel. When we love each other, we're reflecting Jesus. When we don't love each other, we're not reflecting Jesus, right? This week, we're going to talk about what it means to walk by faith. Next week, we're going to look at parenting. Uh, that might seem like a jump, right? Um, but man, more and more as a culture, we don't, we don't know what to do with our kids, right? We are so messed up. And so come back next week, we're going to look at Proverbs, and it's going to tell us like how to raise kids. What does that look like? We all need help, right? Uh, even me as an empty nester, I still need help. I was telling some friends, I'm going to be a grandpa now, and I keep having this anxiety, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's the easiest job in the world, right, being a grandpa? Um, so I think I can handle being a grandpa, but man, being a dad was hard, and I always needed more help. So next week, we're going to talk about that. Those of you that don't have kids, uh, pay attention. You need to be here, because those of us that have kids are so desperate and confused, we need your help, okay? So we want you to make sure you're here as well to see what a biblical view of raising kids is all about from Proverbs. But today, we're looking at this idea of, of walking by faith. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. We're going to read verses 11 through 21 here in chapter 2. I don't think I said this, but we've got Bibles under the chairs. If you need a Bible, you can grab one of those. It's page 970, page 970 in those black Bibles if you want to follow along. If you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for you to keep that too. Like we, We'd love for you to have a Bible that you start reading on your own, so keep that and we'll restock the, the little shelves there and put new Bibles out. So the black Bible, it's page 970. It's Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. And just to kind of give you the structure here, a couple of weird words that are going to show up before we read it. I don't want to keep like stopping us as I'm reading it. Cephas is Peter's Hebrew name. That's uh, kind of Aramaic. So Cephas means rock in Syrian or Aramaic. Uh, Peter is rock in Greek. So he has both names, like his nickname was Rocky, right? So that's, that's what he's called in this text. Um, and then another weird word that's going to show up is Gentiles. Um, if you've read the Bible much, you've probably seen that word before. It's the Jewish way of just saying all the other tribes. In Greek, it's the word ethne. Does that sound familiar? Ethnic, ethnic group, right? So the Bible is always saying that all the tribes, all the ethnicities are now one 
in Christ. But the Jews had a hard time with the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Jews had a hard time making that work, right? And so that's part of what the challenge is about here in this text. So when you hear Gentiles, think ethnic groups or tribes. And when you hear Cephas, think Peter, Rocky, okay? So chapter 2, oh, my Bible flipped over. Okay, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. He says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, the other ethnic groups. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So here we have uh, structurally this, this kind of beginning section where Paul is challenging Peter. And he's saying, man, you're, you're messing up, and what you're doing is not walking in step walking in line straight with the gospel truth. What you're doing is deceiving people about the truth of the gospel. When you're separating from other ethnicities, you're preaching the wrong gospel. So he challenges him. And then he reinforces that. It's like, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what it looks like to walk in line with the gospel. You've got to know the gospel to walk in line with it. Um, I want to pray for our time before we look at the text. I also have, there's something else going on in, in my life and in our community's life that I just want to make you all aware of and pray for as well. A um, little background, I'm a like pray, or not pray, I, like cry maybe twice a year, and I've been crying a lot this weekend because uh, one of my mentors is on his deathbed. Um, his name is Gary DeSalvo. Um, he's dying of cancer. He's been the pastor of Grace uh, Temple Bible Church that founded Grace Bible Church. So Temple Bible Church and Temple started us about 13 years ago, um, and he has been the pastor there, I mean, I think like 35 years now, basically the founding pastor that kind of planted that church. Um, and he's dying. And that's really hard. Hard for me because he's been a, a personal mentor in ministry, father figure, uh, leader in many ways over the years in my life. Um, but also, man, we just we got a church of like, you know, 2,000 people that are going to be grieving here and are grieving already. So just let's pray for that community. Um, pray for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for his family, for the DeSalvo family as they grieve and as they miss him. The other thing I want to say is that it's been part of, for me, when I, when I get teared up about things, it's like often things that make me sad and really happy at the same time. And the happiness in this is this is a man who's dying well, who like to the very end spent himself for others and for the gospel. Uh, and so he's living out this, this walking by faith thing that we're, we're talking about this morning. So, so part of my emotion in all this is like, that's, that's how I want to go out, right? Like, you just want to burn out bright. So 
Uh, let's pray for them. Let's pray for the text and, and ask God to meet us here this morning. God, we, uh, we thank you that you love us. We, we pray for your help, that you would comfort us. Lord, I pray for the DeSalvo family, that you would be with them. We love them. We love Gary. Pray that you would comfort him uh, as his body uh, finishes its course. We thank you that death has not won and that he is going to get to see you face to face very soon. God, I pray for Temple Bible Church that you would comfort that community, that they would grieve well, and that you would be glorified more and more through this difficult process that they're going through. God, we pray for the text that we're looking at today, that it would challenge us to live well, to walk by faith, to follow you, to, to live out culturally what we believe, that you're a God that loves us because of who you are, not because of who we are. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move through the text, I was kind of inspired by Philip last week. He had really long Puritan-style points, right? Did y'all notice that? He had four points, and each point was like a three-clause run-on sentence. So I'm going to try that this week. And so my three points are all going to start with walk by faith in Christ, okay? Walk by faith in Christ, and then I'm going to have a not at the end of it, okay? So walk by faith in Christ, not tribalism. Walk by faith in Christ, not works. Walk by faith in Christ, not sin, okay? Can you follow that? It's a little longer. I usually have the like one and a half word kind of points, but we're going to try to go with the longer points today and see if you can follow this. The first point is we are to walk by faith in Christ, not tribalism. Uh, Now, I'm going to kind of try to stick to what the text says here, but I also want to recommend for you going deeper. This is something our church has been about for many years because Killeen is a multi-ethnic city. So we've always said, man, we're in a multi-ethnic city. We want to reach all the ethnic groups for Christ. And so that means we're going to be a multi-ethnic church. We praise God for the degree to which we've been one. Pray for more that we'd be able to reach all kinds of people in the name of Jesus. And here's some books that I would recommend to you. These are mine, so please don't steal them. But afterwards, you can come look at them. And then if you want to order one yourself, I've got Bloodlines by John Piper. It's kind of a mix of his own history and his own personal biography, but also his kind of theological view as a pastor when it comes to issues of race. The second one is called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. This one has all kinds of practical suggestions uh, to the degree that I was talking to one friend. He's like, well, I feel like sometimes he mixes up the practical suggestions with the biblical principles. So, so be aware there, but just a lot of good practical suggestions for ordering church life. This other book is called One New Man, which I think is primarily theological, just kind of looking at what the Bible says about ethnicity, like all the texts, all the key texts, synthesizing those. And Let Justice Roll Down is really helpful, especially if you don't know much about the history of the evangelical church and where we've succeeded, but also where we've failed when it comes to the issue of ethnic relationships. This is by John Perkins, who is a black pastor that fled Mississippi because of racism, then fell in love with Jesus, and because of his love for Jesus, Jesus' love for him, he went back to Mississippi in the middle of the civil rights movement and said, I'm going to start a church there. Um, So this one's really fascinating. Historical, kind of walks through the civil rights movement. This last one is Tim Keller's book on Galatians. We're looking at Galatians today. Galatians hits this really hard, and the text we're looking at hits it really hard. So you can check these out and put them out of the way so I don't trip. Now, this is only the second time I've preached with these glasses on, and everything is curvy and weird. So if I fall, don't worry about it. I'm not that old. I'll just get up, come back on stage. It'll be fine. Um, So the first section here is that we are to walk by faith in Christ, not tribalism, okay? Um, So that word Gentiles is the word ethne, so it's tribe, ethnic group, 
Um, sometimes we think of this in line with race, like color of skin or genetic descendancy. Sometimes we think of it more in line with culture. It's an overlapping term, right? Um, the Jews were both ethnic and religiously a tribe, right? And you could have like grown up in a certain kind of church and that maybe marked you in a really strong way culturally. And so that was your tribe, was like the church you grew up in, or maybe you were a part of some kind of pagan culture uh, that pursued a certain sin and that just marked you really hard. And that was like the tribe you were raised in, right? So there are sinful things about culture and there are neutral things about culture. And one of the things that's helpful as we think about tribalism ethnicity and culture is to be able to differentiate that, right? Like what ends up being the objective measure to what's good and bad about a culture? Well, we would say the word of God is the final measure, right? And so what we want to do is constantly be understanding who we are and what we consider to be important and kind of separating out what Jesus calls us to, like this is what I got to do because I'm following Jesus versus this is my culture, right? The trappings of culture that are maybe you know, plus or minus, no big deal. I can take them or leave them, right? Um, And one of the things that's helpful as we grow as a multi-ethnic church is understanding that we always think our culture, our preferred way that we grew up, we always think it's normal, right? We think it's normal, right? So what happens is I say, um, the kind of music I listen to is normal. The kinds of music that other people listen to, that's the weird music, right? Um, We do it with food. The kind of food that I like, it's the good food. It's the normal food. The kind of food that other people eat, that's the weird food, right? We all are a little bit ethnocentric, and and some of that is harmless, right? Some of it's just preference. We just have to keep our eye on it, right? Like, it's okay to prefer things. Just don't make it like your security before God. I am, here's an illustration for this, all right? For those of you that are not from around here, you'll appreciate this. I'm I'm confessing here. Um, I'm a Texan, Okay. I'm a Texan, Texas, our Texas, all hail the mighty state. You know the song, right? Um, stars at night are big and bright, right? Thank you. <laughs> so I got a picture here of the Texas flag. I got a picture of the Alamo. Um, Texans are uniquely weird about loving our own culture, right? And I think it's important to distinguish between like serious, heretical, I think I'm saved by being a Texan, right? That's one thing. And then there's just the like goofing off around, you know, like, I'm proud that we have Texas-shaped tortilla chips and Texas-shaped waffles at all the hotels, right? Like, it's kind of cool. I kind of like it, you know? Like, we have Texas trucks and Texas beers and Texas everything. It's just kind of like, makes you feel good, especially when I found that when I travel overseas, I get even louder about being a proud Texan, you know? Um, but again, it's, it's usually with a sense of humor. It's usually like not taking myself too seriously. So I use this illustration because I think it's semi-harmless, some of you might like seriously need to repent of your Texanism. But we always have to distinguish between preference, right? Like I like this kind of food and tribalism where it's like everybody else is stupid. They're bad. They're, they're like the wrong people, right? Um, the, whoa, the, standard, the standard is God's word and God's word tells us what's right and what's wrong. And then there's a lot of freedom in, in the middle. There's a lot of freedom to prefer different cultures and like different things. So what's going on here with Peter? Why was Paul coming so hard down on Peter? Well, there's some key words that are going to show up in the text. Separating, fear, hypocrisy. Those are some really important key words that we're going to see in the text. Those are marks of racism. Those are marks of tribalism. So let's read the text, starting in verse 11. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, we don't fully understand all of Peter's uh, motivations. And I want to say, man, if, if you're like me, I'm a somewhat compassionate, sympathetic person. I kind of feel sorry for Peter, right? Like, oh, Peter, like, what did you, you get yourself into this time, right? Um, and we don't fully understand everything that he was thinking and doing here. But we do know he stands condemned. We know because it's in the Bible, he did the wrong thing. And Paul had to challenge him on that. He stood condemned. Why? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, with the other ethnic groups. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Circumcision party is another name for those Jews who would say, it's not enough just to trust Christ. You also have to add to that the Jewish ceremonial law. You have to add your tribal Jewishness on top of trusting Jesus. Because we're not justified just by trusting Jesus. We're, we're justified by trusting Jesus. Sure, we're, you know, they would say, sure, we're all for Jesus, but you also have to be a Jew, right? And they would overlay circumcision and Jewish practices, cultural, tribal Jewish practices on top of that. Now, I think one thing that's clear is in the New Testament, there was a movement that God took his apostles through to get them to leave behind the cultural ceremonial aspects of the law and just hold on to the moral law, okay? And this is something that confuses us a lot still in our culture today. You'll hear people say, well, morality doesn't matter because now people can eat shellfish and they couldn't in the Old Testament, so they just throw out the whole Old Testament, right? And they're forgetting that there were ceremonial aspects in the Old Testament that were symbolic. They were communication tools, right? It was like the web page of the Old Testament. It was communicating the holiness of God. Sometimes I say it's like flannel graph. They were like billboards. They were, they were sending messages constantly about this is who God is. God is holy. God is pure. We are not. We need sacrifices to even come into his presence. And they were just constantly re-dramatizing that through the ceremonial system, through the way that they ate, through the way that they dressed, through the way that they did life. And once Christ came, Hebrews says, those ceremonies have been fulfilled and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And we don't have to hold on to the ceremonies anymore because now we've got Jesus. And you know what? Jesus specifically taught this to Peter. Acts chapter 10 talks about it. And then if you read the whole book of Acts, it comes up several times again throughout the book because they were trying to figure this out, right? They'd been following God as Jews. And then now God was like, you don't really have to hold on to your Jewishness anymore. You can now follow God with every race and every tribe. And that was, that was a hard transition. It was a hard process for them to go through. But Jesus told Peter that very clearly. Peter got the message. Peter started eating and hanging out with Gentiles. He started loving other ethnic groups well in the name of Jesus. But what happened? He, he backslid from that. He, he kind of gave that up. So God had taught him this lesson. We see it real clear in Acts chapter 10. And then he kind of fell back from it. And why did he fall back? Well, he's worried about what the other people would think. And, and we don't know if it was just social pressure or genuine like worried for his life pressure. But either way, Paul says he was wrong. That's a high bar, isn't it? Because I think a lot of times, like in the civil rights movement in our own country, for some people, they just didn't want to get involved, right? For other people, they were really worried, right? Like bricks were being thrown through people's windows and, and bad things were happening. They were fearing for their lives. Either way, to, to act in racist or tribalistic ways, it's wrong, right? So here, what he's doing is he's He's separating from the others because he doesn't want to be seen with them, even though he knows it's okay to be seen with them, right? He like 
knows that he can love them and do life with them, but he's separating because he's fearful of the circumcision party. Again, whether they'll just think badly of him or whether they'll actually hurt him, we don't know. But we know Paul's saying it was wrong. It was just plain wrong. So it says he feared the circumcision party. Verse 13, he says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul's using this word hypocrisy, which means to wear a mask or to fake it, right? And so they knew one thing, but they were faking another thing, right? Their behavior of separating from certain tribes, uh, it, it was a lie about the truth of the gospel, right? Because the gospel says God loves you not because of what neighborhood you grew up in. The gospel says God loves you not because of the color of your skin. God loves you not because of where you were educated. God loves you because of Jesus. Jesus came for you. How did Jesus come for you? Well, he left his neighborhood and he moved into yours. He left his culture and he became a part of your culture. He left the perfection of heaven, Philippians 2 says, and he came and he suffered for you. He paid the price. He moved into our neighborhood, into our broken world, our world where we have sickness and shame and broken relationships. He came and he suffered with us, and he lived a perfect life in this broken world, right? This unfair playing field that we all live on, he came and he won on the unfair playing field. And he lived the perfect life and he loved people the right way. And then he died a sacrificial death. He took all of your sin on the cross. So that if you trust in Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, and if you walk by faith in Christ and not faith in your tribe, your culture, your ethnic group, if you have faith in Christ, then God delights in you. And when you separate from other tribes, that's telling a lie that no, God doesn't delight in that tribe. God only delights in your tribe, right? And again, we have to be so careful about this because there's, there's all kinds of gray areas in the middle where, of course, I can prefer certain music. Of course, I can prefer certain styles and cultures and this and that. It's like flavor. It's like spice of life, right? We all have different preferences. God is the God of all the different color flowers. Like he's made us with all our different styles and cultures, and that's a good thing. But we always have to be willing to set aside our preferences to enter into other people's worlds. What I want to just praise in you guys and in this church is that you do this so well. I'm so thankful for this. One of the debates that came up in that we had a class this summer that studied multi-ethnic church. One of the debates that came up was, man, you know what? Individuals can do this way better than a church can as an organization. And I would say, yeah. Like as an organization, the elders and pastors are, are committed that we'd be a healthy multi-ethnic church, right? That we would embrace all people and make disciples of every tribe. We want to be about that and, and model that and love that. But actually reaching other tribes is way easier for individuals, right? Because what does that look like? That, that looks like you making friends with one other person. And I want to I affirm that and say, you do that so well. That's one of the glorious marks of the gospel in our church, in this community is that I see this happening in your lives. I see you actually taking time to get to know other people, to love them, to understand them, to listen to them, to sacrifice for them for the sake of the gospel. Instead of separating, I see you entering into other people's lives. And I want to say thank you for that. That's such a beautiful thing. I think in past times, I've, I've talked about how like, we want to do more and we want to be more multi-ethnic. You know, and I've kind of pushed this like, trying to take the next mountain in such a way that I've, I've made it seem like for our church that like there's something broken or wrong. I don't think that at all. Like, we are a multi-ethnic church, and I'm so thankful for you living out a life in a way that honors Jesus by loving other people, no matter where they come from. 
one of the marks of that is just biblical hospitality. I, I see the way you welcome each other. We, we live in a city where new people move in all the time, right? Like that's just going to be the life of our church. New people will always be coming. And those of you that are here, those of you that love Jesus, I see you actually loving other people. And that is a mark that you're walking by faith in Christ and you're not walking by faith in your own tribe, in your own culture, in your own preferences. Uh, this can work its way out in ethnic uh, categories. It can work its way out in class categories. You know, rich and poor can work its way out in religious categories. Some of you grew up in very strict religious homes, and but you uh, bravely love you know people that come from non-religious backgrounds, and vice versa, right? Some of you that grew up in non-religious backgrounds, you think the religious people are just really weird, right? Like <laughs> that was me when I first came to Christ. But but you love each other well, and that's a beautiful mark of walking by faith in Christ and not walking by faith in who you are, who you've been made to be. I want to finish with one little part here, and then we'll move on from this point. This is our longest point, I promise. The other points will go faster. So he says there was hypocrisy there. They were play acting, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, that's the walking straight line. Literally, the Greek word is walking a straight line. When I saw they weren't walking a straight line, they weren't in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The word force there can also be translated compel. Uh, so this is an interesting thing here. What Paul's saying is that your cultural behavior can compel people to do things. Even if that wasn't like the first order effect intention on your part, right? So what does this mean? This means that what Paul was, or what Peter was actually doing, is he was separating from these other people acting like they were gross and dirty, saying, I'm going to just hang out with the clean people. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you know what happens when you do that? You know what happens when you belittle the other culture? Is you're making that culture feel like they've got to change into your culture for God to ever love them. But what did we learn, Peter, about the gospel? What did we learn about the truth of Jesus? Is that Jesus loves you because of what he's done, not because of what you've done. Jesus loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. And so when we understand that, that enables us to embrace and love others. That enables us to say, okay, I can set aside my preferences. I don't have to separate from people to make myself cleaner somehow. I trust that I'm cleansed, I'm holy, I'm righteous because of Christ and what he's done for me. Now, we, again, we get confused about this in our culture, and there's all kinds of ways that we, we get confused about what the boundaries are. I would say, just to kind of summarize, when we look at the Old Testament, we still hold on to the morality of the Old Testament. Easiest way to summarize that is the Ten Commandments. For the last 2,000 years, every Christian has agreed that we are bound to nine of those commandments. And then we just have a slight disagreement, depending on your denomination, about the Sabbath, right? And we all agree the Sabbath is us resting from our works in Christ. And then it kind of, there's kind of a trickle down, like, what does that mean? Should you take a nap on Sunday? You know, should you take a three-hour nap or a six-hour nap? You know, there's like... There's debate over that one, but there's this general agreement for 2,000 years over what is the morality of God in the Old Testament. It's the same in the New Testament. So it's really not that confusing. It's really not that confusing. We've left behind the ceremonial law, but we're holding on to the moral law, knowing that we should fulfill that moral law, but ultimately we're only justified in Christ because he's fulfilled it for us. So since he's fulfilled it, we're going to follow him and, and try to obey him and try to do what he says and, and love all people as we do that. Okay, so the next point is that we're walking by faith in Christ and not your works. And this is the one he repeats three times, so it's, you, you can't miss it, right? 
So in verse 15, he sets it up. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? And this is kind of sarcasm. He's saying, we're, we're Jews. Paul's like, we're Jews. Paul's a Jew. Peter's a Jew. We're not Gentile sinners, yet we know that that doesn't justify us before God. Growing up in this family is not what makes us holy and righteous before God. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So works of the law doesn't make you righteous before God. Faith in Christ does. You clear on that? What is justification? What is righteousness? What does that mean? That means that God sees you as holy and perfect in Christ. Because Jesus has become your substitute. By faith in him, God delights in you. So as Christians, a lot of times in Christian culture, we know he's forgiven us for our sins. Uh, We know he can't kick us out of heaven. He has to let us in, right? But we kind of often think he doesn't like us. That's a misunderstanding of justification. Justification is God declares you righteous. That means you are as, as perfect and as beautiful and as delightful in his eyes as Christ himself. It means God likes you in Christ. Do you see that? And that's, that should change everything about how we see ourselves and how we see other people. So Paul's just going to hammer this and repeat. It's not by works, it's by faith in Christ. It's not by works, it's by faith in Christ, right? So he says, it's not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, believe is the same word as faith in Greek. So we also have faith in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody's going to be made righteous by their own works. No one can do it. James says in James 2.10, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. So everybody that starts down that track of like, well, I'll just keep the law. I'll just be better than other people. And then God will be forced to bless me. He's like, no, it doesn't work because we all fail. We all curve off of that line. None of us can, can walk straight according to the law. So he makes it very clear. I want to set this up to kind of give you some background. This might be a helpful slide to take a picture of. There are three basic ways that Christians would say that faith and works interact. I believe Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, summarize this really beautifully. Faith in Christ leads to salvation and good works. It leads to you being justified by God and to you actually beginning to do good things. Philip last week said it's direction, not perfection, right? So it's not like immediately when you have faith in Christ, you just do everything right all the time, but you start following Jesus. You start doing the right things, right? You more and more trust him. You more and more put aside your old ways, more and more uh, begin to walk in these new ways. The, the second category is faith plus works leads to salvation. That is what Galatians is written to contradict. That's what Paul's saying. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's just faith. It's not works. It's just faith. It's not works, right? So Galatians contradicts that. And then the last one, faith leads to salvation without works. That's what James was talking about. Sometimes it seems like James and Galatians contradicts because James literally says you're not justified by faith alone, but James is using the word justified in the way we use it in a modern sense of like, he was justifying his behavior. Have you ever used the word in that sense? Like that's like proving yourself in front of others. So the word can be used in a couple different ways, just like it is in our language. It was in their language as well. And James was like, how does anybody know you actually trust God? Well, if you say you have, you have faith, but then you walk in the opposite direction, that's a dead faith, man. That's like not a real faith. So that's what James was talking about. So I had a little, little circle and a cross out to clarify this. Faith leads to salvation and works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 summarizes that really well. Faith plus works leads to salvation. That's the view that, they're, that the Judaizers were, were nailing down here, right? They were saying you need to have faith and then you need to add the works of the law on top of that. And Paul's opposing that in Galatians saying, no, 
In James, people said, faith leads to salvation without works. It doesn't matter if you ever do anything good. James is like, nope, that's not okay either, right? So, so that's a good summary of the biblical teaching on that subject. What we have to do is we have to trust in Christ, not in our works. So here's, here's an application for you. If you find yourself rehearsing your achievements, if you find yourself arguing with God about all the good things you've done and why doesn't he bless you more, or if you find yourself in social settings talking to other people about all the good things you've done and what a good person you are, that's a good sign that you're trusting in your works. You're trusting in your achievements. It's a sign that you're not trusting in Christ. So I just want to press you a little bit and have a, a come to Jesus moment here. Quite literally, right? I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, really, come to Jesus. So I'm going to stop rehearsing all the great things I've done so that I can force God to bless me. I'm going to stop rehearsing all the great things I've done so that I can force my friends to respect me. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Jesus is the one that restores me to the Father. And you, you can do that right where you sit. You can do that right now. You can do that at home alone. You can just say, Jesus, I see that none of my works are enough. I need you. It's a simple prayer. It's a prayer of faith, a prayer of trust. I, I trust you. I don't I surrender. I'm not trusting in my works anymore. I'm trusting in you. And that's, that's what Paul is calling Peter to walk in line with, right? He's saying your behavior is telling a different story. Peter, if you believe this, then behave in a way that tells the story. And here's the story. It's not our works. It's what Jesus has done for us. The last thing we want to see is that we are to walk by faith in Christ and not our sin. Not sin. Let's look at verses 17 through 21. Verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So what's he saying here? Like, oh no, we figured out we were actually sinners, right? We really had a problem. Being Jewish was not enough. Uh, being a Texan is not enough. I'm actually a sinner. I need a savior, right? When we figure that out, he's like, does that mean that Christ is a servant of sinner? No, no way. He goes into great detail about this in Romans, but here's, I think, the most helpful analogy, is if you go to get an x-ray, and the x-ray machine shows that you have a broken arm, most of you are smart enough to not yell at the radiologist and say, he broke your arm, right? Like, for one thing, you came in there already because you had a problem. Like, you knew something was up. The the x-ray is just telling you what's wrong. And that's the same way the gospel works in our life. the same way the law works in our life. It, It shows us the problem. It shows us we're broken. It doesn't make the problem. Who makes the problem? We make the problem, right? Now, I've alluded to this. We don't fully understand, you know, the unfairness of the world and the brokenness and other people have done bad things to us. That, that's a whole nother, like, philosophical thing we got to work out on some other day. But we do know that our sin is our fault. I'm a sinner because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner because I sinned. That's my responsibility. I'm guilty before God for my sin. I need forgiveness from God. I need him to save me from my sin. And so the x-ray shows that your arm is broken. The law, the gospel, God's word shows us that we're sinners. That drives us to Christ. Now this next sentence, verse 18, is a little confusing and there's a lot of disagreement over it. So I'm just gonna kind of hang on the last clause of this sentence. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This could mean like three or four different things. Go check out five commentaries on Galatians and you'll find five different versions of this. So I'm just going to hang on to what he already said in verse 17. I'm a sinner, right? And he's basically repeating it in verse 18. 
I proved myself to be a transgressor. Guilty. I'm guilty. So I have nowhere to turn but to who? To Jesus. To God who would give me an external righteousness. To a Jesus who would leave the comforts of his culture, of his home, and come into my home. Verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was one of the first Bible verses I ever memorized. I would recommend it to you. It's a good one just to kind of remember. Okay, it's not, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's not me, it's Jesus, right? And again, this doesn't mean it obliterates your culture. This doesn't mean it obliterates your language and your preferences and your style. It just means before God, none of those things count for righteousness. Jesus is what counts for your righteousness. It's not me that saves me, it's Jesus that saves me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, I can't set aside the grace of God, right? When I add Jewishness to it, or when I add my Texanness to it, or when I say, oh, you've got to be really well-educated for God to approve of you, or you've got to make a certain amount of money, you're going to be a part of this class, you're going to be a part of this ethnic group, or you're going to have to this skin color, or whatever it is. When we add these things on top of Christ, what we're doing is we're saying Christ doesn't count. We're trampling the Son of God. We're trampling His blood. We're saying it's not enough. And Paul's saying, I can't do that. I can't nullify, nullify the grace of God. I've got to trust in the grace of God. He's the one that, that saves me. So application-wise, the way I would describe this is we have to learn to separate our primary and secondary identity. Your primary identity is Galatians 2.20. The old me is gone. The new me has life in Christ. It's in Christ. It's what Jesus has done for me. That's my primary identity. That's what binds us together. Multi-ethnic church. We're all from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, zip codes, ethnicities, education, uh, even countries, right? We're, just, we're all from different backgrounds, but we're one in Jesus. That's what binds us together. That's our primary identity. We're adopted into the family of God. Then secondary identity, yeah, those can, as long as it's not sinful, it's okay, right? You got to filter it through the grid. If you're, if you're breaking the commandments, then you need to throw that part of your culture out, right? As I said, there are a lot of things in our culture that are neutral, that are just like flavor and spice, and then there are things in our culture that are actually bad. And so the Bible is the grid by which we judge that. There are parts of my culture I have to get rid of, right? And there are other parts I can just hold on to, and it can just be a preference and a flavor and a style. But my primary identity is in Christ. That's how I know who I am. That's how I know that I'm secure before God. That's what enables me to make friends with other people, right? Instead of thinking about my tribe, instead of thinking about my achievements, instead of sizing other people up, I, I joked about this earlier. I think men struggle with this more than women. Maybe not. Ladies, you can tell me if this is true, but men, we have this problem like sizing people up, you know, kind of seeing people competitively. Is that, am I just the evil person that does that? Um, you know, like, I bet I could take him. You ever think that? Like sometimes, <laughs> now as I'm walking with Jesus, I'm trying to put that out, right? I'm trying to get rid of that, like let that die. Um, but that is a, that is a thinking about who I am. That's a placing my identity in my tribe or my strength or my works or my achievements, right? We have to put that aside. The more and more we put our identity in Christ, the more we're able to just like treat other human beings as other human beings and love each other well, show proper respect to each other as made in the image of God. One more piece on this, just uh, application-wise. More and more our culture is saying that my true identity is what I want, 
And that's a very dangerous game because often what that leads us to is saying, instead of my primary identity being in what God says and who God is, I'm placing my identity in my personal individualistic preferences. And that's the road to justifying sin. Because currently that's happening in a lot of different areas of where the culture disagrees with the Bible as we say, well, if I like it, it can't be wrong. Like if God made me this way, then it's got to be right. But the Bible says we have to repent of our preferences. Often we have sinful preferences. Like there are all kinds of things in life that I want. And I'm like, oh, that could kill me. I have to stop wanting that, right? And that's what he calls us to. So I just want to appeal to you. Don't put your identity in just your wants. Don't put your identity in the way you feel this week or the way you felt last week. Put your identity in God, who he is. We'll wrap up with the idea of walking in circles. As I said, this, you can Google this, uh, this research. talks about how human beings can't, can't walk straight. But what's interesting is physically, if we do have a line to walk, usually we can walk it, right? If we have buildings next to our head, usually we can walk in a straight line down the sidewalk, right? Like So biologically, the way humans are constructed, we can walk in a straight line if we have the right external guides, laws, to guide us. What's really weird is spiritually, even when you've been given an external law, you still can't walk straight. You still can't walk in a straight line. Even when God gives us the law, you know what we do? We're like, thanks for that line. You know what? I'm going to still walk off on my own. You know? That's what the scripture says about human beings. Spiritually, even when we've been given the line to walk, we still rebel against it to our own detriment. It's like this suicidal obsession with self. If I want to do my own thing, even if it hurts me. And so what the new covenant promises over the old is no longer is the law just given to you, but the law is written on your heart. And the way Paul talks about in Galatians is in chapter five, he says, this new law is written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. And if you trust in Christ, if you walk by faith in Christ, the spirit of God lives in you and he will tell you how to walk. And just like Philip said last week, it's not perfection, but it is direction. And yeah, you'll still curve off. You'll still be like Peter. I'll still be like Peter. And we'll, we'll need a Paul to come like smack us upside the head sometimes, right? But the Spirit will confirm, yeah, he's right. This is the way I got to walk. This is what it means to walk by faith in Christ, to trust him, to pursue him. Let me pray for us.